Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. This episode brought to you by Custom Splice Off-Road Recovery Gear. All right, here we go. Back to the talent tank. This is our first big episode back after just an amazing King of the Hammer season. What a great race we just had back at the beginning of February. Here we are in March and sitting down on episode one back, none other than our new king, Josh Blyler. How you doing? How's it going, Wyatt? I'm doing good. So we've got Josh sitting in his shop, pile of pro chassis behind him. Gosh, you know, congratulations. I, I If I can't get that out off my chest enough, to be a new crown king, to be a new name on top of the box, how's that feel? It's pretty surreal. Uh, you know, I don't know that it's fully sunk in or if it ever will. You know, this was completely a dream that I never expected. It was that far-fetched. I never even really dreamt for it because I, I didn't think it could be pulled off. You know, so really it's awesome. It's super ecstatic that we did it. It's just amazing. I love it. It's it's cool. I'm super honored to be included in that list of king names. That that sticks forever. You crack me up because I know I could, you know just putting you on the spot, and I've been told, and I can tell you're a very humble guy. And so when I'm putting you on the spot to talk about yourself, I see you're kind of like, oh man, I don't know if I've you know <laughs> how to talk about myself this way. You know, uh, yeah, I'm not doing cartwheels. Yeah, I'm the new king, but um, yeah, dude, congrats. <laughs> Thank you. You know, after the race ended and, uh, you know, you're, you're holding the scepter and the race is over, I started getting text messages and calls and people just saying, who's this Josh Blyler or you need to interview Josh Blyler. We want to know who this guy is. You know, there's this whole entire fandom around King of the Hammers and Ultra 4 Racing and they're just like, who are you? And I'm sitting back going, well, I kind of know who you are. You know, I've seen you, your name floating in the points race a little bit, but holy cow, you might be the best ultra four driver today, not just because of King of the Hammers recently, but today. And that seems like a, a, a crazy claim, right, Josh? Yeah. I don't know that I'd claim that, but if you want to claim it, I'll take it. Well, I'm going to give it to you in here. And let me just rattle off some stats for you. So you got your car in 2016. Your dad got his in 2017. We'll talk about your dad here in a little bit, Rusty, but okay. you got your car in 2016. You raced the East series in 2016. So 2017 was your first year out at King of the Hammers. Yes. Yep. Yeah, racing at King of the Hammers. In 2017, you finished the National Point Series in fourth. In 2018, you finished the National Point Series in second. And in 2019, which is this past fall, you were number one. Mm-hmm. You've raced King of the Hammers four years, 17, 18, 19, 20. In 17, your first year ever racing, you've in, this is all 4,400, you finished sixth. You finished fourth in 2018, 2019, you know, you still finished, but it was only 11th. I mean, right. Right. And then you came back, <laughs> you know, a few weeks ago and you won on the box. You're number one. And that's four races, four finishes, one barely outside the top 10 at King of the Hammers. And then in the points race, you finished four, two and one in the last three years. I would say that your stats, I know you're a humble guy, but your stats, yeah, man, you're legit. We try to be consistent. You know, a lot of people don't believe me when I say the King of the Hammers deal. 
I honestly, all I ever wanted to do was finish that race one time. That's all I wanted to do. You know, we went out to check out that race in 2005, really had no idea what it was other than the name. I knew the name King of the Hammers, but we showed up in the lake bed and started looking around and I'm going, this is awesome. I got to do this. This is cool. The whole time my dad's going, kid, you're nuts. This is crazy. This is out of our league. And uh, I said, no, we're going to do it. So we, we did it. And uh, really all I wanted to do was finish that race. We finished it. And then I thought, well, maybe uh, you know, putting this thing on the box, just uh, sometime a podium finish. That would be pretty cool. Still seemed pretty unreasonable, but I thought it'd be cool to shoot for it. To shoot for a win, never did I dream that we could pull it off. Well, I know as we talk, I'm going to jump us way, way ahead of where we're at in the conversation, but you going and racing off-road and going and getting a 4,400 car wasn't outside the, the realm of a reality or just a crazy harebrained idea. You are from a long line of racers, and you are been a heavy and fast off-road racer around the Lime Mountain Series there in PA. Yes, I wouldn't say I'm from a long line of racers as far as the bloodline goes. Really, my dad was kind of the first one to get into it. But locally here, racing's been part of the tradition forever. You know, the Lime Mountain Series brings that to the table, and uh, it is a very off-road Jeep racing's big here. And so I was talking to um, one of your friends, and he was one of my friends too, and I said, you know, what makes this guy so fast? And he goes, man, he goes, I don't even like pre I'm, I'm not even going to name who this is. He goes, I don't even like pre-running with him because he's so fast in the trees, it carries over to what we saw at King of Hammers, that you become so fast in the rocks that you walk away from everybody. And you're not at a sprint, you're just running your pace, and after many, many years of practicing and being good at Lion Mountain, you just have that innate ability. You know, it's been a big evolution. Um, you know, go back to my Lime Mountain days. That race evolved very much like King of the Hammers. It used to be a attrition race. It was survival of the fittest. Whoever, whoever could make it to the finish line had a really good chance of winning the race. As it evolved over the years, it evolved into a sprint race. You know, there would be 20 people that have a strong contention of winning that race every single start, and you had to sprint and earn it. You inherently just got fast in the trees because if you wanted to win, you needed to figure out how to dodge trees and make it work. You know, when we roll over to the rocks, I, I don't know that that so much helped me in the rocks. You know, I had a very good teacher. You know, Eric Miller was took me under his wing. And before I went out to the King of the Hammers pre-running with him, I'd never been in real rocks, what I'd call real rocks. I don't know that you can pick a better trainer than Eric Miller. I mean, he's arguably one of the best, most finesseful people in the rocks I've ever been around. So to, to have him show me the ropes, I was pretty fortunate. Yeah, he's a, he's a student of the course. You know, he's always studying, always studying, always studying, always learning, and then always trying to evolve it. I really respect that guy a lot. Yeah, for sure. The, I'll never forget the first pre-run trip we had out there. I had my 4400 car, and we, we left there. We went from Reno to Johnson Valley to pre-run. His car was pretty shot from the Reno race, so he went everywhere in his Razor. And we did every one of those rock trails in my 4400 car and his Razor. And at the end of every day, I'd just be shaking my head because I was struggling. You know, I was learning and, and trying to figure it out. And here this guy did it in a golf cart, and I was getting my ass kicked in a 4400 car. <laughs> right. How has things changed since uh, a few weeks ago? Has your phone been just ringing off the hook? I know you're not a big sponsor guy, meaning I think my right way of preface this is you're not looking for sponsors in the sense that you have a business. And we're going to talk about your business here in a little bit, Big B. But you're really 
have full dedication to your empire, to Big B, to your business, and to all the families that you employ. And so sponsorship isn't necessarily something that plays well into what your goals are for your recreation. You know, this racing thing for us is a way over the top, serious hobby. We take it probably entirely too seriously, but uh, it's not how we make our living. And it's never how I intend to make a living. You know, Big B is is what we do for a living. It's, it's where we go to work. The race cars and the race shop is where we go for fun. Uh, I was also very, very keen on that getting into this. You know, people told me, hey, look, if you want sponsors, this is the route you go. Here's how you do it. You want to present yourself like this. And uh, it always turned into it looked like more of a job than a hobby. You know, the one person told me, you know, the the most expensive parts are the sponsored parts. And, and I think they're right. You just the amount of time you need to invest into that to keep your sponsors happy. For me, it's just not worth it. It would take away from my everyday business, you know, running Big B and, and keeping everything going here. It would struggle. We do this for fun. And and the moment it becomes a job, I always said we're, we're quitting. Um, we have enough jobs. So going to hang it up. Yeah, the phone's been ringing. I've had tremendous amount of opportunities. Super grateful for all of them. But uh, it's just not a fit for us. We're doing this for us. We're not doing it for fame or the sponsors or anything like that doing it for us and the team and and the group of people that follows us around is is why we're doing this and that's what i absolutely love about your story is you're you're some rec wheelers some rec racers rec racers (laughs) that are very good at it and we're like you know we're here to do this as soon as it becomes not this we're we're going to hang it up let's devolve back let's jump back to who josh is and kind of get back into where you're at man you live in help me pronounce the name of this is it clingerstown Nailed it. Perfect. Clingerstown, Clingerstown, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. And you race out of Pennsylvania and you just want to race in California. It's always, uh, (laughs) something else. Like when Eric, when like Miller does it or any of the guys that drive from that side of the country, like Chris may from South Carolina, it's like, God, that's the three days, four days on the road to get out West. Y'all got some commitment. It's an adventure in itself. Really? (laughs) No, it really is. But man, Clingerstown, I mean, what is there? There's 100, 120 people live in Clingerstown, small little burg. I don't know what the population is exactly, but it's not many. I mean, there's no red lights, no stop signs. We don't have a police station. We have two fire companies, two bars, a couple churches. There's not a whole lot going on here, but uh, I, I wouldn't go anywhere else. I love it here. Fireman's parade. Oh, yeah. We got uh, the fireman's parades and carnivals. Uh, you got to do that every year. You know, the local one here, the Pittman Fire Company, they uh, they do a parade. It's literally front to back is a quarter mile, half mile at most. And it's really just a tractor parade. You know, everybody gets their old tractors out and we cruise them up and down the street. But yeah, that's about it. Now, I saw something about this. Uh, there's a fishing rodeo involved with that. Tell me, what, what's a fishing rodeo? A lot of kids things. Uh, they go to a trout stream. You know, a lot of times the, the local fire companies or the sportsman clubs will stock a stream. Normally, it's kids, you know, 16 and under, 18 and under. And you'll do a fish rodeo and so you can catch the biggest fish or the majority of the biggest fish. That's as simple as it is. Like I said, I, I try to do my background on stuff and I, that's the first time I've come across a fish rodeo in riding. And I was like, okay, I've got to ask Josh what exactly this is. We don't saddle them up and take them for a ride or anything like that. <laughs> no, I didn't. Yeah. Right. I figured it was maybe like a, <laughs> like a roundup, like you're hurting them in a, in a Creek or something, or, uh, or at least yeah. a minimum, a kiddie pool. You grew up around there though, right? Yes. Uh, Born and raised in this valley, uh, you know, where I'm from, we call it the Clingerstown Valley. You know, we live between valleys. All the mountains run east and west. And uh, 
between the mountain ridges, it's only a couple of miles. So we've got different valleys. So I've been born and raised in the Clingerstown Valley, not always on this property where I'm at right now. Till third grade, I lived about six to eight miles away from here. When my parents bought this business, uh, moved to here and uh, really lived in an old farmhouse here on this farm. It's This farm is back four generations now, although it hasn't been farmed for at least the last two. It's been a manufacturing facility since, but still the farm. We're actually sitting in the bottom of the barn right now. This uh, this very barn I'm standing in right now is the same place I kept my pony when I was a kid and just got transformed to a race shop. So it's uh, still at the same place. Now I keep several thousand ponies. I love it. <laughs> All right. All right. So your parents, right? Your parents still together. Rusty, who we know from racing. What's your mom's name? Sherry. Sherry. Yep. Rusty and Sherry. And she's a saint, right? She's dealing with you uh, too. Absolutely. And then you've got a brother, Skip. Is that right? Yep. Yep. And I have a sister, Brittany. I mean, let's talk about your mom for a second. Total saint taking care of you guys. How does she deal with all you guys racing and all your years and years of racing? Man, I don't know. Uh, you guys know dad, Rusty, a little bit. I always consider him the grown man that's still stuck at 16. He refuses to grow up. I don't know how he does it. He's old and has done some incredible things, but he just never quits. He's always on the rev limiter and it's go, go, go. And don't get me wrong. The, you know, a lot of guys look at what dad and I are doing right now and think, man, these guys it, it had to be great growing up with Rusty. And I bet it was all rainbows and unicorns. And let me tell you, man, it wasn't. He spent a fair amount of time with his foot up my ass. I needed it. I deserved every bit of it. And uh, he straightened me up and did a pretty good job, I guess. And then my mom on the flip side, she is the complete opposite. She is the sweetest lady you will ever meet. She will do absolutely anything for anybody. She's one of those, she's too nice kind of girls. Some people can take advantage of her, but why her and my father ever worked, I have no idea because I don't think you can get two more opposite people. But yeah, love mom. She's the the greatest in the world. I'm literally envisioning like Pennsylvania, this nice small little town, and I bet your mom is a hell of a cook. That's what I'm imagining right now. <laughs> like, like, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and you look well fed too. You know, you don't look like you probably ever missed. Oh yeah. <laughs> this fat kid didn't miss many meals, man. <laughs> Same here. So yeah, so you talked about Rusty being hard on you, but man. Today, in memories looking back, I mean, you guys have and share some amazing bonding experiences. Oh, we've done some absolutely incredible stuff, man. You know, we were very big hunters before we got into the racing as heavy as we are now. So we've been all over the country hunting together. He's actually finished his Grand Slam of North American animals, which is one of every big animal, big game animal in the country, uh, which is a just a huge feat in itself. Wow. In the hunting world, that's like winning King of the Hammers. It's pretty cool. So you know, he's done that. And what a lot of people don't know is, is where they started. My mom and dad started at absolutely nothing. Uh, when they bought this business, you know, there was five people and it was a stretch, man. They, things were tight. I got to see it growing up. Things were nowhere near like they are today. And and they've earned every cent they've ever made and every experience they've gained. So I'm, I'm just super proud of them guys. And, and it's really cool to see what they've done. On that line, I can't wait to talk about Big B and that, you know, your manufacturing business, because mm -hmm. we're going to get there. I find building empires highly insightful and the guys in the families behind them highly insightful. So we're going to get there. But you end up going to, you went to a local county, what was it Tri-County School, Tri-County High School, what's it called? Tri-Valley. Tri-Valley. Tri okay. Yep. So that, which you went, you laid into me on the Clingerstown Valley. What are the other, what are the other two valleys? Uh, so you got Tri-Valley, the Higgins Valley, and 
man, I should know this. Hubbly Valley. Hubbly? Yeah, that sounds right. We'll go with that. We'll go with, we'll, we'll go with that. Yeah. Where's your wife, Lori, from? Is she from local or you find her and pull her back into Clingerstown? I actually found her in college. Uh, she's from Ephrata, about two hours from here. If it wasn't for college, I'd have never met her. But yeah, that's where I found her. What did you go to college for? Uh, computer drafting, mechanical drafting. Do you use much of that today? Uh, the company does. I do not, right. unfortunately. And it was a stepping stone. When I went to college for drafting, there wasn't a single computer at Big B, uh, which looking back on it, I'm not sure how that ever happened. But, you know, I know we're not the only people that can tell that story. You know, went to college, learned drafting. Literally, when I graduated high school, I had zero computer experience. The uh, computers were just coming onto the scheme in high school when I was graduating. And I was in the Votech program, had zero interest in any of that. So I knew nothing about computers. Left high school, went to York Tech, learned computer-aided drafting, brought it back to Big B. We bought a computer and, and started doing our own drafting here and uh, making programs to send. At that time, we didn't have any lasers to the burn table and, and stuff like that. So it was really a stepping stone and, and got that program going at Big B and helped us move it along. And then now you've got, you and Lori have three daughters, three amazing daughters. Yep. Three daughters, uh, Lily, Maddie, and Hannah couldn't be more blessed. And you're completely outnumbered in the house completely right oh yeah horribly <laughs> like, yeah not a, not a chance uh, no and it's it's really good right now because all three of them love each other and you know the oldest is 13 and the youngest is nine you know so they're at the age yet where you know boys aren't a thing and everybody loves each other but uh yeah but that 16 18 year old thing uh, it's gonna be great it's gonna kick you in the butt i have yeah. a daughter who's nine and she she's a piece of work now she is hard <laughs> to handle um yeah, there's no drama along those lines, but, you know, she's she's big into baking, so it's constant. And the whole missing a meal thing, like, I could miss a meal, and I'm going to make up for it in brownies or cookies, or it's just nonstop. She's constantly baking. It's For sure. And, yep. <laughs> yeah, this this past weekend, she gives me a list to go to the grocery store and says, you know, Dad, Daddy, I need you to go get the grocery store. Well, then I piddled around. I ran another errand. And I'm checking out at our grocery store, and as I'm pulling my wallet out, I pay, and I put it in my pocket. And, you know, you pull your cell phone out. I'm addicted to my cell phone. I look, and there's a, a notification, and it's Parker Pemberton has put a, like a, a, a fence around me, like a geofence on my uh, Find My <laughs> Friends or whatever, so that it will notify her when I leave the address of the grocery store. And I'm like, what is, it? What is this NSA crap? You know, like, yeah, like my daughter, sure. just, my nine-year-old just, uh, just, just set me up like the NSA. So I'm like, oh man, I'm, we're, we're so in for it. And you're in for it too. I mean, you've got a couple yeah. there, a couple years ahead, but what are they into? I mean, you guys live on a farm, you've got horses, goats, cows. Are they yep. into any of that? So they're, uh, as of now, none of them are, are showing any interest in the racing. You know, the little one, I keep kind of looking at her cause she's the, she's the wild child, man. She's, uh, She's making me lose my hair at an alarming rate. If any of them will do it, I think it would be her. But right now they're, they're into their critters, man. They, uh, and it's awesome to be honest with you. They don't do anything on the iPads or the Xboxes or any of that stuff. And um, I, I couldn't be happier. Um, you know, they got a whole herd of goats and ponies, and cows and dogs and cats and chickens and 
white-tailed deer and they've got a regular zoo up there and uh it's really cool to see you know their their priority is when they get home from school they want to see their animals so you know if you're at home you'll see them run in one end of the house rip their school clothes off they get on their farm clothes and out the other end of the house and they beeline it to the barn uh but it's it's really cool you know they're interested in the the local 4-h stuff and they do some shows at the county fairs and stuff like that and you know nothing super competitive just fun and and kids being kids and hanging out with other farm kids and it's one of the reasons i would never leave this area it's an amazing place to to raise a family and and raise kids and they're telling you stories about animals with names and you're like which animals is that exactly yeah they've all got names and i think they have birthday parties for most of them and and uh it's it's really cool to see them that into it and it also makes you feel really good. You know, we've, we've got horses and and we don't ride as much as we'd like to. It's certainly not as much as they'd like to, but if it's a weekend and it's a nice day, you know, they're just hounding you and pounding on you. Let's go riding. Let's go riding. Let's go riding. And it's just, just a good feeling that your kids want to do that kind of stuff. And and it's, it's, it's awesome, man. I will tell you, that's the number one thing that I miss about living in suburban America today and growing up rural was I grew up so rural that I would ride my horse to my friend's house two miles away. That was what you didn't ride a bicycle down a gravel road. It just wasn't what you do in, in the rural America, you know, the flyover States here. So I I did, I'd ride a horse. And so I missed the ability to just walk out and be like, Oh, I want to go ride today. I want to go clear my head today. Let's go get on the horse. And I I can't do that today, but that's pretty cool that you guys and your girls are able to, to do that. It's awesome. You know, you talked about riding around when you were a kid. When I was a kid growing up in this valley, we all had horses and ponies, and that was our mode of transportation until we could afford something with four wheels. You wouldn't think you'd get in trouble on a horse, but we did. I mean, we'd go out and pull stunts, and, you know, we'd be swimming with them and just doing stuff you shouldn't. We rode them. There was like five or six of us that had the brainy idea we're going to ride them to school. So, you know, school from here is about a 20-minute car ride. So we saddled up one morning real early and we left in the dark and rode our horses to school and tied them out back in the ag fields. And we got kicked out of school for that. And it just, we had so much fun with our horses in this valley. And it's, like I said, I'm, I'm glad we're still here. Yeah, those are good memories. Well, growing up on a farm, you have another, you know, hobby outside of racing. You're, as you said, when I asked you about the fireman's deal, you guys have the parade and mm-hmm. you like antique tractors. Yep. Yeah, so that's, uh, I don't know if it's a bad habit or what it is exactly, but uh, got into that at a very young age. I had a, a young friend of mine, Jesse Hepler, lives in the same valley as a dairy farm. Um, you know, him and I started hanging out. He was a couple years older than me, so he had access to wheels, and, and I didn't. So him and I started palling around and, you know, came to find out that in, in top Weiler family barn, there were some old engines. I didn't know what they were, but he did. So we, we drug him out, and him and I so much stuff that never run again but it's it's where i got my mechanical abilities i guess i'll say uh you're just wrenching and tearing on old junk and uh trying to make it go and make it run and it's you know old mechanics are very simple mechanics so it, it teaches you a lot of good lessons so it's really where i got into the farm stuff and yeah we've been into that we've got a bunch of hit miss engines and old tractors and and stuff like that and it's just uh, they're laying around doing their thing so for the people that don't know, and I do know some about these, tell the folks what a hit and miss engine is. <laughs> so a hit and miss engine is a, you know, early 1900s, just call it 1900 to 1930 at the latest. They were engines that you used around the farm or anywhere, really, anywhere you needed a, a powered device. They put them in washing machines? Right. Washing machines, corn grinders, corn shellers, uh, you know, stone mills to make your flour, 
an engine to run your water pump to pump water, anything that you needed moving parts for that you either didn't want to hand crank. You know, that was your options back then, either hand crank it or put a horse on it or something, but there was no electric switch to flip here. So anyway, a hit and miss engine is kind of what it says. It, it doesn't hit on every stroke. They're very efficient engines. They, they've got big flywheels and uh, they hold the exhaust valve open and freewheel when they don't, when they're not under a load, when you put them under a load, it, they can hit every stroke. And so they call them hit and misses, you know, they, they hit on some cycles and they miss on others. And they're the simplest of simple mechanics you could ever come up with. But if you think about when they were made and the resources they had back then, it's pretty amazing that they even did it. But we're into that and we've got a slew of them. My brother's into it. A bunch of my buddies are into it. And you know, we get together a couple of times a year. We drag them all out and you know, like we make chicken feed for the chickens at home and, and just completely. So it's really an excuse to sit around, do nothing and drink beer and have a good time, I guess. But we have fun with it. Which is where I was going. Like you'll do anything if you can hang out with your buddies and drink beer. Right. Pretty much. Yep. You got it. <laughs> what is uh, like your favorite models? I mean, tra- the tractor models or are you like, like the John Deere's or are you into like the Maytags and the dairy maids or. Uh, so hit and misses it's new Holland is my thing. I, I like new Holland's it's uh, they were built here locally in, in new Holland, Pennsylvania. It's about two hours from here. Uh, so that's kind of my hit and miss go to full size tractors. I don't really care. You know, farmers, John Deere's really any of them. And then the little tractors are the Pennsylvania Panzers. Those are the ticket. And now are those turquoise? Those are the tantalizing turquoise ones, yeah. And that's yeah. kind of where the Big B Motorsports racing, that's where your car colors came from, right? Yep, exactly. You know, when, when I built the first car, it was actually Leah, Leah Miller that was up here, and we're trying to kind of come up with a color scheme for this thing. And, you know, I wanted to be different. I didn't want to – it was already a yellow car with Eric, and there was red cars and green cars and blue cars. Everybody kind of had the, the normal colors all picked, and I wanted to, to have a color – but all the good ones were picked. So the first race or two that we ran it, we just did rust. It was a brown car, rust, you know, all rat rod looking and and it looked really neat, but it didn't it didn't stand out at all. It, like especially when you got into the desert, it just disappeared. It was a brown turd. <laughs> so Leah was here one time and I'm like, we gotta come up with a color for this. And there happened to be a Pennsylvania Panzer tractor sitting there. And uh, so how about we go as a joke, I said, let's go tantalizing turquoise, because that's the color of the Panzer tractor. And she looked at me and she said, you know, that might work. And uh, it, it kind of stuck. We stuck with the tantalizing turquoise and everybody makes an ass out of me because of the name, but uh, I think it looks good. And it's kind of my color now. No, it does look good. And it's easily identifiable, certainly on a big screen in Hammertown. People can look up and see this. They, they knew it was you. Yeah. <laughs> so Big B, Big B Manufacturing. You guys are one of the larger employers in the area. You guys are mm-hmm. welding manufacturer, job shop. If I heard right, did your grandfather start it, but then Rusty bought it from him in the early 2000s? Uh, yes, my grandfather started the company. At that time, it was strictly a farm, uh, and my grandfather was still a farmer. He was farming this farm, but he was he was a mechanical guy, had a lot of uh, mechanical ability, and and uh, you know started doing repair work for other farmers. And you know, there's two things in this area: is farming and coal mining. You know, so he started doing repairs for local farmers and coal miners, and and it just kind of turned into more and more. And he was just him; he didn't have any employees at the time. Um, but it just kind of grew into he was doing more of that and less farming. Ultimately, he just started growing the business. You know, started in a tiny little box shack thing with a, an old Bridgeport mill and a and a little buzz welder, and and grew it from there. You know, my dad got involved. Uh, dad worked away from the company for a couple of years, came back to the company, got involved 
started help build it. Um, you know, at the time, I think there was five or six employees. You know, my grandfather was that was just entirely too much. You know, he was used to being a, a lone wolf, basically. Uh, you know, doing his own thing, and you know, there also my dad is being a pain in the ass, wanting to go, go, go. They they came to an agreement. Dad bought the place in '96. It was five or six employees. It was some tough times, man. They uh, he really strung it all out there, and uh, failure wasn't an option. It, this was either going to work or his entire life was going down the tubes. So, super super cool the way he did it, and to, to be able to watch most of it go on has been awesome. What year did you graduate high school? You had to graduate high school right around then, right? I graduated in 98, so two years after my dad bought it. Yep. There you go. And then you came back to the business after college, after York, and uh, brought what you learned back. And between you and your dad, you guys have gone from that, you know, couple guys in a little shack to where you guys are today. Yeah, it's been been quite the evolution, man. It's... uh, You know, I I got out of high school in 98, went to college just a two-year two-year deal came out of there in 2000 and uh, came back to work full-time you know prior to that I had worked here like in high school I wasn't involved in any sports or anything like that you know if if I wasn't at school I was I had my ass kicked down into the shop and told get to work you know so you know so basically I had a very good understanding of what was going on here and and the daily operations by no means was I running it or anything but I wasn't completely new walking in here out of college I, I knew the ropes so came in here after college, did the the drafting thing, kind of got that kicked off and, and it just kept evolving. You know, my, my brother got involved in, um, you know, 2005 to 2006 ish, and we've just been continually growing it and adding people and equipment and buildings. And it's been good. You know, it's uh, a nice steady climb in growth. Uh, there's never been a giant spurt where we just shot out of the ground. It's just really been, you know, since 2006, uh, I'm sorry, 96, just a kind of slow uphill grade and just keep picking away at it, making it bigger. I love the story. I love the, the fact that you're leveraging technology. And I have another key on that that I want to key on here in a little bit about Big B and you guys leveraging technology, but that you've slowly grown. Let's talk about your products, what you guys make. You guys just a welding job shop. People bring in projects, but they tend to be very large stuff. Like one thing I know you guys have done work on is like Ferris wheels. That seems... Mm-hmm crazy when I see him like at the carnival or whatever out on a pier somewhere, but what was the most interesting thing you guys have built? You know, it's all interesting. Uh, you know, that's kind of cool about this job we're into or this world we're into is, is it doesn't get real boring. You know, we, uh, we're a job shop machine and fab. So, you know, we do large weldments, big machining, you know, our, our forte has never been around the little stuff. Uh, like we don't do good with little nuts and bolts sized things. You know, so big weldments, big machine parts, big castings that, that just kind of fits our niche. And it, it's kind of a, a good little niche we've built around that that fits us good. But the cool part about it is, is there's very little repetition. Sure, we're, we're welding or machining every single day, but it's always different. And I think that's really what attracted me to it because I don't have a super long attention span. I kind of get bored with things. So, you know, if this was a production facility where it was the same exact thing every day, I don't know that I'd have made it. I'd have probably bailed them and did something else. But, you know, every job is different and it has its own challenges and, and own quirks. And it's just very cool. And, and the, the range of people that you get to work for is really neat. It's We're not based on one person that we're working for or one company. We're, we're kind of all over the place. And uh, it's been a good model. You know, it's it's helped grow and I like it. What I think is really cool about at least that 
style of work and that of type of work is that you're not beholden to any single industry or all your eggs aren't in one basket. Like you're not fully into coal or you're not fully into oil and gas production, which I'm down here on the Gulf Coast. Every weld shop in Houston is in the oil and gas world. And with what we've seen happen with oil and gas in the last uh, couple of weeks, I mean, everyone's freaking out and flipping out. And it's like, well, if you were diverse, it's just hard to be diverse down here versus where you're at. You guys could have been into the shale plays and the, the gas world, but you didn't and you've stayed diverse in the other things that you guys have going on. I think that's, I mean, who would think to work on Ferris wheels? <laughs> that's a, whatever it's, comes uh, through the door, right? It's to be honest with you, it's a project that many, many companies wouldn't take on just for the liability reasons. And, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. You got to do a good job in anything that you're doing, but you know, when you're doing something like that, I mean, it's literally people's lives that better on the line. So, you just, you got, you got to do it right. And you got to do a good job. And when you're done with it, you got to be fully willing. You know, the way I always explain it to the guys is when we're done, you got to be willing to put your kid on there and and go. And if you're, if you're scratching your head at all, then, then I'm questioning it as well. So it's neat. I mean, we've been, we've done a couple Ferris wheel projects. We have a road crew that does traveling mechanical work. You know, we've been all over the country. That's always fun. You get to go see in different part of the country and, and, uh, you know, it's usually two, three week stent trips, you know, not very often. So you get to spend most of your time at home and go see another part of the country and see something cool and, and do that. So it's been fun. Do you take any of the big B employees with you guys out West for any of the races or to KOH? Quite a few of them. Um, actually throughout my whole life, really, it's, it's kind of been the same group of people involved in my life the whole time from, from when I'm a kid. Uh, you know, I told you about that the guy that helped me drag tractors out of the, out of the top of the shed, you know, we're still very good friends and he was at hammers this year. One of my old horse riding buddies, uh, Mikey is our pit crew guy. Uh, he's the lead man. He's the guy barking and screaming at everybody. And then he does a really good job with that. My weld shop foreman is also my uncle, I guess. Yeah. Uncle. And it's kind of weird because we're kind of the same age, even though he's my uncle, but, uh, he goes with, he's a weld shop foreman here. He came with us to hammers, his son and I are very tight. We're, we're good friends and he's been a great help. Caden is his name and all the big B guys, you know, uh, there's probably out of the crew that was at hammers this year, there was probably eight of them that are employees of big B who, uh, you know, they know what we're doing and, and they wanted to come check it out and be part of it. And even the ones that couldn't make it, they, they're quite aware of what we were doing. I'm very sure race day production was at an all time low here and yeah, our right. internet service was swamped, but you know, it, uh, it's been, it's been good. No, that's very cool. And that's exactly where I was circling back to. Like, you know, when you're small town America and you're engaged with all these people, they tend to be all the same people. So I wondered, and I was fairly certain that that was what the story was, that these are all guys that, and that's part of why you've been successful, correct? That you've known these guys, you've had relationships with these guys. You guys are all vested in each other from because it's not a, Oh, at the end of the day or at the end of the week, they get to go home to wherever it's no, we'll go home, but then on Monday we'll see each other at work or we'll see each other. <laughs> You're exactly right. And, uh, you know, from the outside looking in, I can see how it would kind of look like, you know, an outsider would look at our whole operation here and say, man, you know, five years ago, these guys really went at this aggressively and together this world-class team of people and, and just went and attacked this King of the Hammers thing. And it, it really couldn't be further more from the truth. It was me with a crazy idea of that looks really neat. I want to try it. And all these people kind of followed it is really humbling to be honest with you. And, and 
fate brought it all together. Um, you know, so all these people that are involved, I didn't actively go chase any of them. They kind of came and, and knew what we were doing and seen what we were doing. And, and everybody kind of just fell into place by accident. Really. It was, it's amazing. You know, we kind of got a well-rounded group of people that everybody kind of has their niche and they found their niche. Every single year we go to hammers, it gets smoother and cleaner. You know, this year at hammers, I didn't say a single word about the pits or loading for the pits or anything like that. You know, we've done our due diligence. We've got spreadsheets and checklists that we've developed over the last couple of years. And, you know, it gets turned over to that group of people and things just happen because they've all done it before and they're good at what they do. And, and like you said, they're fully invested, man. They, they want us to do good and I want to do good for them. And it's just been awesome to see the whole thing come together. And some of it's, you know, moths to a flame or birds of a feather flock together. It's, and people are attracted to doing things that if everyone's on the same page of doing great things, then great things are going to happen. And that's kind of looking at your crew as kind of that. I mean, I would go dig ditches with my best friends if that's what we're going to do. I mean, I know we would have fun doing it because it's with people that you enjoy being around and they enjoy being around you. You know, my group's a lot smaller than that. Like, I don't know how many people (laughs) enjoy being around me, but yeah, man, that's not good. Good people are just fun to be around. And and like you said, man, it's, you put a crew of good people together and you can pull amazing things off, put people on the moon. That's how far that goes. So back to big B and we talked about like being technology forward. You guys have a big solar field. Yep. Are you carbon neutral or somewhere thereabouts? We've got a megawatt system. We are, the system has continuously overproduced the plant, you know, so every year our, our meter gets zeroed out and uh, to date we've always overproduced what we use in a year. So it's pretty cool. It's uh, another big undertaking by my dad. That was all his idea. And, and frankly, I think he was getting bored here and he said, Hey, let's, I want to build a solar field. Let's go build a solar field. And he took that under his wing and, and ran with it and, and had some tough times so they got that all straightened out and but it, it was another situation like that where he couldn't fail there was too much invested so he made it work and and really dug into it but yeah this this whole plant is run by solar and uh pretty cool to be green no absolutely and has that been a good marketing tool for big b as well it has been there's especially you get into the bigger worldwide companies, they like it. You know, it, it's cool to see, to see them. They perk their ears front when you, when you talk about your solar field and, and being completely providing your own power and, and stuff like that. So it, it has been a, a bargaining chip for sure. No, I think it's really cool. And that's, I mean, that's the world that I operate in. I've been in the power business for, you know, since I left college, uh, the ag jobs were not paying what the energy jobs were. And so I ended up moving to Houston and then Enron happened and, but I've spent the last few years doing power project development and some of the stuff we've worked on has been some solar work. And when I went through your stuff, I was like, man, look at this. They, they have a solar field. How cool is that? And how technology forward that is that you or your father was, is now I'm finding out that it was Rusty. Rusty had the vision to say, Hey, <laughs> we're going to do this. Sorry. Sorry, Josh. I'm going to take the credit away from you. I was about to give no you No problem. No problem. <laughs> but that you guys are, you know, looking forward at the future and being green, I think, you know, there's some level of it is absolutely amazing. Some level of it, I think, is a little bit crazy. But at the same time, you see the dollars at the end of every single month that you don't have a power bill. At the end of the year, you don't have a power bill. And for a fabrication shop, an energy bill is usually a very significant line item. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, we're writing a big check every month for electric. So now we just, we wrote a big check for a bunch of years to pay for a solar field, but uh, that's all wrapped up. And yeah, it's just, it's, 
pumping electric out. So it's been good. You ready to have the conversation about racing and how you got into it? Sure. You want to unpack that a little, do a little <laughs> unboxing over here. All right. So as a kid, you were into four wheelers and then somewhere in there, you ended up involved with line mountain. And I want to get into the four wheelers a little bit, but man, I have so many questions about line mountain. So, all right. So I'll throw down. kind of kick it off from the beginning. So it started with ponies basically, right? Dad did buy me my first four wheeler and it literally, I don't know, it probably took a month or two to have that thing destroyed. And, uh, you know, that was kind of the deal when dad gave it to me, he said, Hey kid, here's your first four wheeler. I fund this one, any repairs and thereafter it's yours. And, uh, so I kind of ruined that ride real quick. And, uh, then we were back on ponies, but, uh, you know, so it went from ponies to four wheelers to ponies to, you know, now I'm 15 years old, you know, some of my buddies were older than me, already had their driver's license. You know, a neighbor boy here in Mikey, like you said, you'll hear that name throughout the, the deal. He's now our pit manager, but he also worked here at the time, had his own car. Him and I are buddies. He lives 300 yards from my house and we're palling around and doing things. And the Lion Mountain thing is if you're a local boy in these couple counties uh, and you're a local young man raising hell, you know about the Lion Mountain thing and it's what everybody goes to do. For the most part, none of us have anything worth racing at all. Um, you know, we take junkyard stuff that wasn't roadworthy, you patch it together, and you go race this Lion Mountain thing. So I'm sitting at 15 years old. My buddy's 16. We take a junkyard Toyota that's literally far beyond roadworthiness, uh, and we scab a cage in this thing and go to race Lion Mountain. To back up and talk a little bit about Lion Mountain, Lime Mountain is now this year, they'll be 50 years old. It's their 50th anniversary, uh, which is awesome to think about. I mean, a right. racing organization that's been racing in the trees for 50 years is pretty cool. But uh, Lime Mountain was started by a, a brothers, a group of brothers, last name Lanix. Dale Lanix is the last surviving brother. And you'll see a lot of connection on this. I have the utmost respect for Dale and, and his family and what they've done there. Dale's grandsons are Jared and Shane Erdman those are our co-pilots. So it's, you know, Jared's my co-pilot and Shane is dad's. So it's kind of cool to see how intertwined all of this becomes. And as the story gets deeper, it'll just continue it intertwine. Start but, to gel. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty rad, but so anyway, the line mountain starts by the Atlantic brothers have Jeeps and, you know, through, having a good time decide, let's see who can make it up the mountain, the farthest they, they live up against the mountain. Uh, they, you know, the family owns the mountain and they decide how far can we make it up the mountain with the Jeeps, whoever makes the furthest wins. Um, you know, and over the years, it just kind of slowly evolves into, there's a, a track in the mountain and, uh, let's see who can make it the farthest or the most times. And, you know, every year it just gets a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and, uh, you know, it, it explodes into what it is today. You know, today they'll get, um, you know, between 120-ish competitors will come to that race. Um, you know, anything from the from the junkyard-worthy stuff to ultra-four-style stuff. They've done an amazing job at rolling with the times. They've got a point system, a class system, where you can race anywhere from the A-class to the E-class. It's really whatever you budget and whatever you want to do. It's been really cool to watch that all go. So... I'm back to 15 years old. Me and my dad built this old piece of crap Toyota. And, 
truly went there to see if we could make a lap. You know, and most of their races are four lap races. You went there to see if we can make a lap. We probably raced three or four years and didn't achieve that goal. Every year, just, you know, something stupid would break. You'd come home and find something in the barn to put it back together. And just every year kept getting better. And I think we finally finished a race. You know, and if there was 120 competitors, we probably finished like 90th or something. It was horrible, but we finished the race. Man, that was a victory. So we were done with that thing. It was totally garbage, completely tossing. And it goes to the scrapyard. Uh, by this time I am through high school and into college while I'm in college, my dad got my brother started in go-kart racing. I came out of college and bought a go-kart. It's go-kart racing for a couple of years, got done with the go-kart racing. We got into micro sprint racing, we micro sprint race for a couple of years. By that time I'm married and all the racing stopped. However that happens, I'm not sure, but all the racing stops. <laughs> <laughs> We're not pointing the finger at Lori, but it's Lori's fault. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All the racing stops and, uh, you know, got the family started, you know, got a, got a house built, uh, you know, moved on with life, got, got all that going. And, and by the time I was through with all that, um, you know, we, we were building race cars again. And, and about that time is when, was when my dad got involved, uh, you know, really up to that point, he wanted nothing to do with it in the off-road racing, the line mountain style racing, he actually said to me when we were building our last, the first line mountain car after the, the wife deal, he, he told me too, I was nuts and this was dumb and a waste of time. And maybe three months into it, he had one sitting there. He went down to the neighbor's house and bought his old race car. And, and all of a sudden he figured it was a pretty good idea. And that's kind of where the, the Rusty and Josh competitive thing all started. We, we were at line mountain beating on each other's doors and we didn't care where we finished in the group of the field, it mattered where we finished next to each other because that's the guy that had to put up with the other guy for the next couple of months, you know, and uh, it just kept evolving, <laughs> you know, and it, I'm telling you, and it didn't matter if I finished 98th and he was 97th, my life sucked. And if the shoes fit flipped, his life sucked. It's just the way it was. And uh, we've always been super competitive and we just bust on each other to, to no end. But, where was Skip in all of this? No interest? Uh, Skip had some interest. So he did the, the go-kart racing, the micro-sprint racing. He did the off-road racing for a year or two. But really, no, it didn't, it didn't light a flame under him like it, it did with me. And he's, he's into his own things, and he's got a lot of cool projects. He's into the hit-and-miss engines and stuff, too. But no, Skip never really got hook, line, sinker into the off-road racing. And so the cars that you're, were yours and your dad's, is this the whole tough enough and twisted intentions? Yep. You got it. Okay. So I've seen yep. pictures of them and, and as was described to me, like, you're like, Hey, Wyatt, go look at the pictures of these and you're going to laugh. These guys totally take junk and put them together, but then they, they put them together like with really good fab skills and they're well packaged <laughs> and they're well prepped, but it's still junk. Is that fair? It, pretty much. Yeah. It, uh, we had some good years with those cars, man. I, I sold mine. Dad still has tough enough. That's upstairs in the top of the barn. I sold mine to finance the first Miller car is really, that was my, that was my kickstart for the Miller car. It's all perspective, right? Like at the time. And even when you're racing, you're like, this is the, the baddest, best thing I've got out there. But now then as things evolve and times change and you look back, you're like, man, I really was kind of racing. Yeah. To be, well, dad still races his, he had his at the seven miler last year, the old tough enough car. And uh, I laughed at him because, you know, he got done with that race and he came out all gimpy and hobbling around saying there's something wrong with that car. No dad, there's not. 
that's how they've always been. He said, no, I'm telling you, they've, they've never been that bad. <laughs> yes, they were. We're just really spoiled now. You know, we had a blast in those cars and did well with them. You know, I won the Lime Mountain Series once with that, the old Twisted Intentions car. And we were always at the top of the box, man. We, we had a, a lot of fun racing those cars over there. So we're at the point in your racing career and your racing life and your racing resume, your pedigree. How do we get from there racing local there on the seven miler with the Lime Mountain guys? How did you get from there to racing 4,400? It happens in there somewhere. And I know Eric has raced the Lime Mountain a few times. Is that the connection or am I drawing a line where there's not a line? No, that's the connection. He's the it's another piece of fate that changed the course of history. Really. If Eric Miller would have never showed up at Lime Mountain, we probably wouldn't be having, I'm, I'm positive. We won't be having this conversation today. You know, so up to the point where, it, you know, there was a couple guys, we called them the rock crawlers is what we call them when they started showing up. Cause they were showing up with vehicles that none of us had ever seen before. We didn't know anything about them. We haven't heard anything about them, but uh, you know, it was Eric Miller and Lou Levy and uh, a couple other guys, but they were racing. That was when Ultra Four was doing some of their events at the Roush Creek racetrack in Trevorton, Pennsylvania, which is about 20 minutes from here as well. But even though they were that close, none of us heard about them. At least I didn't hear about them. I didn't know anything about them. Through that connection, some of these rock crawler guys started coming over to Lime Mountain, Eric Miller being one of them. And he was the one that, you know, when they when these guys first started showing up, the whole Lime Mountain crew, myself included, were saying these guys will never beat us here. They're too big. They're too heavy. They're too wide. Um, it's just the wrong car for our course. You know, we're very tight, tight woods. It's just not going to be for them. Well, all of a sudden, this guy starts kicking our ass. And, uh, you know, it, it raised our eyes and we're going, man, we're, what is this thing? And and who's this Eric Miller clown? And, you know, what, what's going on? do a little bit of homework ourselves and find out, well, he, you know, he's this king of the hammers racer. And by that time he had already won the hammers once and uh, he had a name for himself and, and, you know, him and the Balducci guys, you know, they were, they were ripping around the country doing this ultra four racing and, you know, knew him to see him, but by no means were we buddies, you know, we'd ask each other at, at the tracks and stuff and say, Hey, Eric, you know, Hey Josh, how's it going? But what always impressed me about Eric is he wasn't afraid to come down to our level. Um, you know, as far as race cars were concerned, we knew nothing. And, and this guy was a God at the point, you know, we'd, we'd race against him. And frankly, if he didn't break, we couldn't beat him. But if he had a, if he had a fault, we'd beat him. And we were pretty proud to say we beat Eric Miller. And, uh, you know, we'd, we'd pout around with that all for a while. But what I always liked about Eric is, you know, at the end of the race, he'd come up to us. I'll never forget the one race we were at Roush Creek racing, you know, the old tough enough and twist and tension car did not ride the greatest. And Eric had broke down. And he was sitting alongside the track in one of these little nasty rock sections. And he was watching us go through. And, you know, after the race was over, he came up to us and said, hey, guys, you know, what kind of spring rates are you running? Dad and I are going, I don't know, <laughs> whatever those are. And he's like, no, but, you know, what pounds are your springs? I, I really don't know, Eric. What, whatever they send us is what's in there. And that's how crude we were back then. We had no idea. So he starts informing us, well, how about preload? You know, what kind of preload do you have on them? I don't know, but you know, whatever's on them. And uh, so he's, he starts laying out the book and saying, look, man, you are kind of out to lunch. Uh, let me help you. And and he laid it all out and gave us the, the general formula on, on you want to work your spring rate off your preload and, and kind of work from there. And, and to give you an example, like uh, 
you know, I came home from that race and, and I wanted to play with his theory. So I started playing around with springs and preload and stuff like that. And on the front of that car, I think I went from a 350 over a 375 spring and until I was done using his calculation and getting the car sitting at ride height with the correct preload, I think I was 100 over 125 spring. That's how far oh, wow. off I was. You know, be damn taken to the rest racetrack the next time. And she was night and day different. So that's why I always kind of I liked Eric. He, he wasn't afraid to talk to us on a level we could understand. He didn't come at us arrogant or, or make us feel inferior. You know, he just he was a bro. He, he would talk to us. So. Now, how that all links together is, you know, Eric, Eric's coming to Lime Mountain. I know him vaguely. I know he races this King of the Hammers thing. And I, I go on Google and, and start checking this out and find out that this King of the Hammers races in California and Johnson Valley, you know, end of January every year. And so I, I start doing some homework. You know, the, the race is coming up in maybe two months. And I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go check this out. You know, I'm going to get plane tickets. We're going to fly out there and, and look it over. So we're like late 2014 coming into the 2015 king of the hammers right exactly all right yep. so uh you know i told my dad i said hey i'm gonna get i'm gonna get plane tickets and go check out this king of the hammers thing and you know his response is that where that eric eric miller runs there doesn't he and i say yeah that's, that's where eric miller runs you know and it looks like a pretty cool race i'm gonna i'm gonna go check it out and he's like ah, if you're getting tickets get me get me plane tickets i'll i'll go with so, all right so i said to my buddy willie and caden which is my cousin and uncle you know i said hey guys you know because they were very ingrained in the our racing program at that point you know, they helped a lot and, and spent a lot of time with us and so i said hey guys i'm gonna go out of the hammers and check this race out you just want to you just want to go with and tag along both of them they were hook line and sinker man let's go look so we buy four plane tickets and a rental car man and we had the johnson valley california with not a clue on what we were walking into i mean we had we couldn't have been the more tourist type people in the world so we get to the, you know, the Hammertown gate and, and pay for our wristband and we go in and, and we were that naive. Like we didn't think we were allowed to go inside Hammertown. We thought it took a special band to get inside there and stuff, you know, so we're, we're completely clueless. And, you know, we, we thought we snuck in and, and we didn't, you know, we're, we're sneaking around and we finally get inside the gates of Hammertown. We're walking around. We have no idea where Eric's tent is. We didn't tell him we were coming. We know nothing. So we, we get to his tent. We finally find his tent and uh, I'll never forget they were in there working on it. It was the year Eric did the the backdoor shootout and just nuked everything in the car like two days before the race. And they're in there and they're tearing rears out of this car and a motor and a transmission and radiators and pumps. I mean, they, the car was just laying in a pile of parts. And I'm going, holy <laughs> crap, you know, what is this stuff? And, you know, we watched the race and uh, I, he had problems that year. I think he was second, finished second or something like that. But regardless, at the end of that race, I was done, man. I loved it. I wanted to do it. I had to do it. I couldn't die not doing it. And uh, we came home from that race, and I put a for sale sign on my my uh, Twisted Intentions car. You know. Well, I I got a question for you. Could you imagine going back today to your five year ago self, at, like thinking you're sneaking into Hammertown and being like, bro, <laughs> in five years, five years, you're winning that thing. Can you imagine Never. that? Never. That's, right? that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, you just, it should have never happened, but it did. <laughs> no, it did. No, anyway, it, it so did happen for a reason, with, with, with good reason. But yeah, anyway, I had to d digress there for a little bit and be like, Dude, sure, that's, no a, that's quite a moment. Like, it hadn't been many years. This is very recent history, five years ago. It's just five years ago. It's been a pretty aggressive schedule, for sure. 
Stay tuned. Your talent tank is in full get. Since 2007, Custom Splice has been the go-to supplier for tactical on- and off-road vehicle recovery equipment. Custom Splice owner Todd Stoffer saw a market where demands for absolutely the safest solutions to vehicle recovery were not being met. Since then, Custom Splice has taken on numerous safety and recovery projects, solving deficiencies in recovery gear for individuals and companies worldwide. What started with synthetic ropes has led to Custom Splice's expansive inventory of not just ropes in countless colors and diameters, but an expansive product line of hooks, fair leads, specialty thimbles, chafe guards, to name a few. Plus the fabrication of Custom Splice's newest edition, Recovery Rings. Not to be forgotten, don't miss grabbing some Custom Splice soft shackles with your next order, which are also available in many sizes and colors. Even though Custom Splice is a small business in America's heartland of Kansas, you can find Custom Splice employees shipping their products globally on a daily basis. Let's support this small business that supports our community and the talent tank. Give Todd and his crew at Custom Splice a call at 785-856-1844 or go to the web at customsplice.com before you get stuck without a custom splice solution. Now, back to the show. You guys get back and you follow back up with Eric? Uh, so the first thing I did is I put my car up for sale because I'm, I'm hook, line, and sinker. I'm building one of these things. I don't care what anybody tells me, I'm doing it. Um, I had no idea how I was going to do it, but I was doing it. So I put my race car up for sale and, uh, you know, I just finished line mountain. I was the points championship. Like the worst finish I had all year was second. You know, we really did good that year. And I thought, well, what a better time to sell a car than coming off of a season like that, you know? So I put it up for sale. Uh, lo and behold, some guy bought it. He still has it and he doesn't do a whole lot of racing with it anymore, but you know, he still has the car and, and has done well with it. But anyway, I sell this race car and now I've got this fistful of cash and I have no idea what I'm doing. So I, by this point, I have Eric's phone number. I call him up and say, yo, Eric, uh, I'm kind of in a position, you know, racing season is only a couple of weeks away and I just sold my race car. And it was kind of another oh shit moment because I was that set on doing King of the Hammers. I put my car up for sale, it sold, and then it all kind of sunk in like, oh shit, you know, racing season's in two months and I just sold my race car. I've got nothing. What am I going to do? <laughs> so I knew Eric was toying with building a production version of his car. Like I said, by this point, Eric and I are really on not much more than a name basis. We know each other's names. And that's about as deep as it goes. I call him up and uh, I say, hey, Eric, I just sold my race car. I'm building one of these 4,400 cars to go to go King of the Hammers racing. You know, how, where are you sitting on your production chassis? I, I want to buy one of your chassis. And he's like, man... I, we're nowhere. I've been struggling. You know, I've, I've been with a couple of shops and nobody's taken a hold of this thing. I don't have the time to invest to it. So I'm, I'm really nowhere. I can't sell you a chassis. I'm like, all right. So I was kind of bummed. And uh, I said, well, would you help me just point me in the right direction, man? Cause this is a totally different world than what I'm used to. We figured out the Lion Mountain game and what to make go fast there um, through trial and error. And it took us a couple of years. You know, we didn't start there fast. It took us a lot of years to figure out what worked. And I didn't want to go through that same learning curve in Ultra Force. So I said, Eric, would you just help me out? Tell me what works. Tell me what doesn't. Geometry, use these parts. Don't use these parts. Just point me in the right direction. And he said, well, yeah, I'd, I'd help you anytime, man. Uh, actually, I'll one-up you. Are you interested in building my chassis? Yep. I said, well, yeah. Yep. That B. sounds like fun. <laughs> Sign me up, man. So it really, there too, that whole thing 
probably from the outside looks like it was well more thought out than it really was because there wasn't a whole lot of thought in it. You know, Eric said, hey, would you build my chassis? And I said, sure, let's do it. Um, literally probably a week later, the 21 car of the, of Miller Motorsports was sitting in this building, kind of semi stripped down. It had housings under it and everything, but by no means a full blown race car and John Balducci, uh, you know, that's where John Balducci comes into the program. So Eric brought the car up, turns us loose. John knows what he wants changed. And that's really the first time I've got to meet John or have a lot of communication with John. But ultimately John ends up living in my parking lot in a camper for six months, seven months, something like that. While we hash out the original chassis on the fixture table, all of the designing, all the programming changes he wanted made. And John's a very big part of this whole mess orchestration, whatever you want to call it. Well, let's even talk about that a little bit because I was almost you know naive to this. I, I wasn't informed. So I feel like a lot of people aren't, but Miller's pro chassis, and all the kind of the the weldments that go to it, you know, the the bracketry, the geometry, all those things, you guys figured out in your shop. He had it figured out. But then you guys, did you guys scan that chassis, that original 21 chassis? And now Big B Motorsports manufactures pro chassis for Miller and all the pieces that go with it today. Is that fair, kind of? It's semi-fair. Uh, there's some portions of that aren't correct. By no means did Big B perfect that chassis. They had a, what I'll call a 90% perfect chassis when it rolled in here. John could tell you every tube nut bolt washer on that chassis in his sleep. You know, he was ingrained in that first car when they built it. And John is probably one of the most overtop, overthought anal people I've ever met in my life. And him and I got along awesome. And it's another part of this puzzle that, like I said, it just it looks like everything was super planned out and spent a lot of time. And it was just another one of those situations that it just clicked. John was this guy that was just he had his reasonings why we literally had a conversation in the shop the one night. We probably talked and argued for three hours. And the result of the conversation was we moved the tube a quarter of an inch. <laughs> but but right but it was it was a tube that needed moved this way or that way to make it more serviceable, to make it easier to work on. And it was totally worth the move, but it's, that's the kind of guy he is and just drove all the small details over the top. Ultimately we ended up designing the same car they brought in here. Uh, we made some minor changes on it to make it easier to work on. We did a lot of work on the steering geometry to give it right math and make it turn. I'll never forget the night John started asking me questions about, how he set up steering in the old cars. You know, he brought up a word to me that I've never heard in my life was steering Ackerman. And I'm going, what did, what did you just say, man? He's like, steering Ackerman, you know, how do you set up the, the steering on your old cars? We make them turn left and right. That's that's as deep as we got. And he looked at me like I was at from another planet. And, you know, until it was all done, we, we ended up doing a lot of math and geometry and changed some things on the steering to make those cars turn better than they did, which was pretty amazing. But really, it was it was that form of element. We modeled the car completely in SolidWorks. Every component, every nut, washer, bolt, the engine, the drivetrain, everything is fully modeled. Um, there's a ridiculous amount of time in the into the modeling, but it's it's proved itself so worth it. You know, so that's kind of how that all evolved. It went from a phone call from me saying, "Hey, Eric, will you sell me a prototype chassis or a production chassis?" to I'll bring you a chassis to his mechanic living in my parking lot. And 
yeah, till it's all done, we're we're building Miller chassis and and knocking them out. It's an it's an amazing story. It's really cool how you find synergies in people, and you don't know what they're capable of until you ask, or you don't know what they're capable of until you give them a chance, right? Or you just even open your mouth and have the conversation with them, and you're like, "Holy crap, you do that! Wow, I yeah, I've been looking for a guy to do that." Right. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> sometimes, again, this is back to the racing. This sometimes better lucky than good. Some days. I will always take luck over good. Always. When it was, I guess, recounted to me that that's what you guys, that you were doing. I actually believed that John, uh, the Balducci brothers and, uh, and Eric were, you know, bending every tube still for the pro chassis in his shop. I didn't know. Uh, it was just a piece of knowledge that I know is probably out there, probably in public. I just didn't, didn't know that you guys were the ones sitting on top of that. No, and it's really you know, from, because I was the outside world and I stepped into this world and I, I truly, when I came in, I thought Eric's were, were building these cars in this, you know, super high tech, crazy garage deal with, uh, you know, all kinds of CNC machines and laser cutters and everything else. And, and, uh, I'll never forget my first trip down there. I walked in and I mean, it, the place was nice and very clean and everything else, but it was nothing what I expected. What it was, was three guys with an insane amount of passion Exactly. In building something that they wanted to go conquer the world with. And uh, it was a, it was a really neat experience. It was nothing like I expected. I mean, you can look at them and just say the blood, sweat, tears, and just the endless nights of not being able to fall asleep or waking up thinking about something in the middle of the night on those chassis. You can see it there. You can feel it there. I mean, they're, yep. there's something else. When is one of those cars going to come out with uh, chicken wings on it? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Um, I like that pregnant pause. You had a good pregnant pause and a chuckle there. So <laughs> there's something. We've been actively chasing it and talking about it. I was pretty much a firm believer that it had to happen, that if we ever wanted to win races on the West Coast again, we needed to do it. I still believe on the East Coast, in the trees and the mud, this thing, this little farm tractor is going to do good no matter what. King of the Hammers is the curveball, in my opinion. I, and I, I've always believed that, and I even believe it more now that, that we pulled it off. That, that race is, you just don't know. It is a horribly abusive race. You know, the chicken wings have come a long way. They're getting better in the rocks. They're getting tougher. But you're, I don't know that you can ever build one as tough as you can a solid axle car. And the other thing I don't think you can ever do in one is turn like these cars. These cars are re- ridiculous for turning it, they sh- they look broken when you turn them and and you can just get in the rocks and wiggle them around and, and do their thing so i don't know i don't know if there ever will be a chicken wing maybe someday I, I don't know no it's a it's a good question i mean it's a good question good answer like you hedge your bet on it because i'm of the same fruition as we got out of king of hammers i was asked okay unlimited budget who do you have build you a car and what do you and what do you build and you can race it anywhere and i was like man i mean you know, I want to race King of Hammers. I believe the car needs to be a solid axle. Like for that race, I believe just because of the endurance and it's an endurance factor. I'm willing to have my eyeballs rattled out of my head in the desert to be able to get everything else where it's good. But if you can only build one car, I'm like, well, I really want to go to Baja. I want to really want to race some best in the desert. You know, all of a sudden it's like, well, a solid axle probably is not the car for, for, for this guy. Right. But, exactly. But you know, I, I guess if, if money wasn't an option, you know, if, if it wasn't a factor, then yeah, absolutely. You do the exact same car, one solid axle, one wings and spicy it'd, wings. It'd be a beautiful system. Yeah. Right. And then get, 
and one of each for a spare. So you really need like four cars. Yeah. And you, you guys wadded up a car, right? Didn't you wad yeah, up a car actually, a year ago? What was the story on that? So it's actually the car we won King of the Hammers in this year. That car has got a very colorful history. It, uh, so my, my OG car, the, the original car that John and Eric and I built out of this shop, I've got an incredible amount of sentimental attachment to that car. I said that car will, I'll die with that car, man. It's, uh, it's never going to leave my side. I poured everything into that car and I, and I love it. It was getting to the point I had ran that car three years and I was pretty rough on it. I mean, we did a lot of winning and everything else, but it, I gave her some tough times and I didn't want to kill it. So I decided I'm going to build a new car, a total identical duplicate, duplicate car of, of my original car. Um, and I'm going to kind of semi-retire the original car and, and kind of give her the good life and let her kick back. And the new car I'm going to build is strictly a tool. I'm not going to get attached to it. It's strictly going to be a tool. And when she's used up, I'm going to sell it and we're going to build another one. So we did, we, we build it and I mean, I didn't cut any corners. We build a really nice car and put everything into it and, you know, took it out there to shock tune. You took it out to King of the Hammers. Yes. 2019. We hold it. Right? Yep. We finished it in the fall of 20 or 2018 and hold it out to King of the Hammers 2019. We unload it. It's brand new. It's literally never seen dirt. I mean, it left this garage and got rolled into, into our trailer to haul it out to Hammers. We unload it. We bopped it around the desert for 50, 60 miles, just kind of wore the new off of it and, and liked it uh, and had a tuning session set up. And these cars always have had a, an ass kick to them, a little buck. Um, you could get the front end to suck it up and, and your nose, you'd, you'd run across with the back tires and you'd look at the dirt with your nose. You could tune it out at high speed and then the car sucked at slow speed. And if you made it really good at slow speed, it had the buck at high speed. So we kind of always just went in the middle and found happy ground and, and dealt with it. That particular year, we had time available. We had the cars done early. We we had the hammers, and, and we're gonna. That's our focus. We're gonna tune this ass kick out of it. And we threw some wild stuff at it. You know, we were tuning with Wayne, and and uh, we threw some off the fence stuff on it. And he's like, I don't know about this. This is kind of crazy. Don't push it. I don't know how it's gonna work till we figure it out. And there's no better person out there to work on. You know what you're working on is than with Alltech Wayne Israel. So, no, right? No, there's Wayne's nobody awesome. better. Yeah, you, you can't you can't paint a better picture than that, man. And he's been involved with the Miller chassis since Miller built the first one. So he's got a huge amount of tribal experience on it and, and knowledge. And yeah, I, I love Wayne. So Wayne throws his package in and he says, I don't know how this is going to act. This is really left field. Don't be an idiot. So, OK, so we go out and found a spot. Where these cars would normally act up. And I made like a, a 40 mile an hour pass across it at a speed where the old setup absolutely would have at least threw the ass in the air a little bit. And it did nothing. It stayed planted. And me being the genius that I am, I said, well, we found it. It's fixed. I turn around and try making a 70 mile an hour pass. And she wasn't ready for that. <laughs> uh, it stood us up and, and I'll never forget. It's the only accident I've ever been in in my life that absolutely went in slow motion. You know, I've, I've heard about it. Guys talk about time standing still and everything else. And it did, man. It felt like we were driving on the front wheels for an hour. And when that bumper touched the desert for the first time, the car just went into this crazy cartwheel and, and it felt like it was up there for an hour till we landed again. And it just never ended. We were just going, you know, front over back, front over back. I have no idea how many times, but we kind of land on the side, I mean, I knew the car was totaled. I mean, the, the ride we just took, it, it was going to be in bad shape. Um, you know, Wayne and everybody comes running over and, and it was Nate Stowers that was with me at the time. And we were both good and just 
it hurt my pride. I mean, we just took probably one of the prettiest cars on a lake bed and just totaled it in less than 50 miles. You guys were fine. You guys were 100% A-OK, no injury, no issue. Yeah, we were good. I mean, uh, so she did, she did exactly what she was built to do, right? She, she did everything she was supposed to do. She, uh, the front clip folded under and a little bit of work on the back, but the center section, the section that keeps you alive, it didn't move at all. It, it was, it was perfect. So anyway, we, we hooked the chain to it, drug it behind the trailer. And, uh, we, we joked about it. We had it. We were the only ones in Hammertown with our own junkyard out back, you know, it had <laughs> parts car sitting out back, just completely torn pieces. But, um, we, we parked it out back and, and I had my OG car with to pre-run. She was supposed to be retired at the time. I just kind of went over to her and had a talk with her and said, sorry, girl, but we're not done yet. We need to go back to work. You know, went race that car. She, she was not at her hammers. You know, I, I took it there to pre-run is what she was intended for. So, you know, between totaling the car and which I should back up is 150% my fault. That was just an idiot going too fast, too quickly. I drove way before that car was ready to drive. And, and if I'd have just ramped up like Wayne told me to, we you could have, have found it. We could have saved a car, but we didn't. Hey, live and learn, right? You know, one of the biggest things that I know, and I know you are a big proponent of this learning from your mistakes, right? You, you'll never, oh, yeah. you'll, you'll never do that again. And you'll never let anyone around you do that again. You're like, listen, you're not ready. I mean, crawl before you run, walk before you run. Let's do this. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the, uh, I mean, I've learned a lot from making big mistakes and, uh, you know, it's kind of something my dad beat into me at a very young age is, you know, number one, don't screw up kid or I'm going to kick your ass. But if you do screw up, take the situation you're in and, and handle it. You, you're the one that put yourself in that situation. It's nobody else's fault. Handle it, make the best of it, do what you got to do. So that's what we did. You know, we put that car behind the trailer and, and said, we'll deal with it when we get home, drug the OG car out. And, and went and raced hammers and, and had some problems, you know, unconsciously that, that whole wreck was in the back of my mind the whole time. I know every time we went over a little a bump and I was checked way up, I was, my butthole was puckered and I didn't want to crash again. So that particular race was our worst King of the Hammers finish ever. We finished 11th and uh, to be honest, we, we ran across the finish line and I, I was bummed, you know, cause that particular year we went there with the best crew I've ever had. We were the most prepared you know, we, we went to the lake bed with three completely ready to rip 4,400 cars. Two days in, we had two wrecked badly. And we, we just made a whole lot of work for ourselves that we didn't have to. But regardless, I still had one of the best crews I've ever built. It, it was the, to date, it was the best crew. Went out there, made a mess. We come across the line 11th and I'm, I'm hurt, man. I'm going, this sucks. The, the, you know, this, this sucks. Man, that's perspective though. I want to check you on that. I mean, that feels just to finish. For, there's a lot of people that have never finished, right? right? And you've finished every single time you've entered, which walking on water, I mean, that that puts you in an echelon that people can't, you know, fathom. But you finished 11th, and that's your worst finish ever. And that's so I'm like, Josh, I mean, at this point, I'm like. Oh, and at, you're, you're saying pretty much exactly what my <laughs> wife said to me. Because, you know, we get back to the trailer, and I'm like, yeah, we got 11th. And she's like, what is wrong with you, kid? Like, well, we finished 11th. We're better than that. You know, I have a, I'm not saying that to be ignorant. The team was better. The team deserved better than that. The team was better prepared. Being hard on yourself is fully within reason, right? It's fully right. in scope. And uh, she's like, I thought all you ever wanted to do was finish this race. I said, yeah, but that was before we finished it. You know, now I want to put it on the podium. I just want to get on that box somehow. 
and, and like I said, she was kind of the reality check. And I, you know, sat back and thought about it. I'm like, you know, jackass, she's right. Uh, all you ever wanted to do was finish this race. 11th isn't so bad. And that's when I went chin up kid. And, and, uh, you know, and I was happy with, with what we went through and, and to be able to pull off an 11th, it was a win. No, absolutely. To come back from the adversity that you guys had earlier in the week, I mean, wrecking a car and I mean, just that's a huge hurdle and to still hold your chin up and finish and within 11th place, that's an amazing feat to get there from where you were mentally a couple days earlier. Yes, for sure. hundred percent. Always perspective. You know, what is, what is that <laughs> silver lining? And sometimes it does. That's why just like you in life, you know, with certainly with Lori, with uh, your dad, with the guys that you surround yourself on the team, surround yourself with the best people, the best of the best, right. That are going to help you elevate your game. And yeah, I, I get that. Yeah. You don't want to let them down, but at the same time, you know, you surround yourself with them so that you can always elevate each other. Like the, you're never right. playing at from the bottom. So Amazing. You know, what's kind of cool about our crew is a lot of people think we're pretty harsh because we elevate each other, not through, Hey buddy, good job. Let's do it. It's Hey idiot. <laughs> How'd you screw that up? Hey, stop you know, that, sucking. That's our motivation <laughs> right there, you know? So, uh, we're kind of different on those lines, but it works. You know, it's, uh, we're, we're heavy on the ball busting. That's the Gilbert sisters school of motivation, right? A hundred percent. That's, uh, that's why we get along with those guys. So good. Uh, yeah, yeah, they they don't cut any slack either. Um, absolutely zero. <laughs> so, next chapter, KOH twenty twenty. Man, what a run! So twenty nineteen, you come back from eleventh place. You were hard on yourself, but really, you had a you had a success. I'm t- I'm calling it a success. I think you're finally yeah. there too. But <laughs> then you you knock out the the points championship for Ultra Four Racing for the forty four hundred class for twenty nineteen. You're number one. Number yep. one in the fall, and then you've got a you know handful of months, well less than a handful of months with a big target on your back going into KOH, and let's go. Let's talk through prep. Let's talk through journey. Let's talk through your week. So I'm going to back up just to 2019 hammers for a second. You know, 2019 hammers we finished. We did the 11th place with the OG car, the original car. I wadded the brand new one. We come home from that. We tear the new one down. And I mean, it, it basically took a whole front clip, rear clip, but I, I wanted to do it right. So we completely tore it down to nothing, put it back on the fixture, proved that the center section stayed and it did. It didn't move a wink. And, and we start rebuilding that thing. But I'm kind of rebuilding that thing along at the same time of keeping OG racing. So OG stuck with me for the whole 2019 season. She she was supposed to be retired and, and she got brought out and had to race the whole season. And didn't do bad at it, right? <laughs> no, she did. She did pretty good. And, uh, you know, the whole way along, you know, we won, we won two of the three East coast races with it. And, uh, now we're going into nationals leading the points race by that time. OG, OG had did all the work. Uh, the new car, which was dubbed BC is completely back together, ready to race. And I'm taking them both with me to Reno. I made up my mind that I was going to race OG at Reno even though BC was the better suited car, BC was going to sit on the sidelines and get a lesson taught to her, you know, stand here and watch how this is done. Me and the old girl are going to go, uh, go, go try to win this championship. And, uh, and she did, man, she, she held together and, and that was a difficult race for me because I wanted to race hard so bad, but I also had a championship I was trying to win. And I it just, 
I needed it all to work out. And it did. Again, we got lucky. You know, Paul Horschel was was on the line there. He he could have knocked us out. You know, unfortunately for him, the the cards went our way. He had a bad day, had some mechanical problems. And if it wasn't for that, he probably would have wrapped up the championship. But anyway, the, the cards ran in our favor. OG and I ran the, the whole year and, and we wrapped up the championship for the team. So we left 2019 Reno Nationals and we did our, our annual trip to Johnson Valley to pre-run. So OG was all beat up from racing Nationals. The new car, BC, I break her out and, and that's where we, we come to terms on how to get along. And, and uh, we raced, we didn't race, we pre-ran that car for a week in Johnson Valley right after Reno. So beat it around, that's where we got to know each other and, and really got to get along. Brought, her, brought them both home from that trip and rebuilt both of them and dad's car. So we totally rebuilt three cars between Reno Nationals and 2020 King of the Hammers. That's a lot. It, it's a lot of work. That's where the, we're very fortunate to have the crew of guys because again, if it wasn't for them, we would have never pulled it off. So at this point, the BC car, the new car was built brand new totaled in shock tuning, brought home, completely rebuilt again, then took out to shock, or I'm sorry, to pre-running. And basically, we, I mean, so we consider a pre-run trip to King of the Hammers is basically what we put on miles-wise. Till it was done pre-running, it was all shot again. So we brought it home, completely rebuilt it again, and it had never stepped foot on a race course yet. So 2020 King of the Hammers is the first time that car got to to dance. She, uh, she redeemed herself pretty good because... To be honest with you, I didn't like that car a whole lot. She gave me nothing but troubles from the word go. And, you know, we, we had it in that wreck and we just, we couldn't see together eye to eye real good, but she, she figured out how to win King of the Hammers. So she's, she's making a comeback pretty quick. So that's how we get, now we're at 2020 King of the Hammers. OG is finally doing what she was intended to do. She's a pre-runner and, and sitting back and relaxing. BC is going to be the the race car. And, and of course, then we got dad and the happy pappy and, uh, you know, there was, there was kind of side bets all over the place. You know, dad had quite a bit bigger motor than I did. You know, all the guys here at the at the shop and the rest of the team, they had side bets on who was going to beat who in the qualifying lap. I have to say, got that one, but. Uh, you didn't, you didn't need to hear uh, that from your dad, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I got him quieted down for a little bit, but you know, we left the line for 2020 King of the Hammers with the same attitude we leave for every other race. We want to drive fast, but it's being smooth and consistent and always forward motion. You cannot afford to stop for any. Um, so you got to take care of your car to make it live. And even with all that being said, there's enough things that can take you out. You don't need to flirt with it. But, you know, we left the line what, what I felt was very calm, cool and collected. You know, three quarters of the way or halfway through the, the first desert loop, we, we had a flat. So we, we run tire liners and, and tire balls inside the liners. We ran as long as we could on the liner, got to a safe place, changed the tire. Up to that point, we really had held our own. We passed a couple of cars, but uh, we're really holding our own. We were holding better than I thought we could in the desert. So we changed the tire. By that time, dad got around us uh, and, a, and a whole slew of other people. We changed the tire. And, and at that point, I thought our day, I, I truly thought that kind of screwed our day that just that that flat was that was taking us out of any serious contentions for anything. At that point, not even thinking that a win was possible. I was just trying to get on the box, man. That's all I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, Jared, my, my co-driver, he had said to me, oh, we're not done yet. Just keep running your race. We'll be fine. And that's all we did. We just we, we ran smooth. We ran clean. I didn't have any more flats the rest of the day. I didn't have any mechanical issues. The The car was flawless there too. It just, 
I, I attribute all of that to the shop. You know, the, all the time and effort we put into our prep is immense. And, and I, I think that's, that's, I grant a lot of our success to that, but, um, just ran a really clean, smooth race and, uh, you know, just started picking people off and, and cruising along. And people just kept breaking. Like as soon as yes. they were listed in the, like they would be announced that, Hey, that's this, the new, the new leader, new race leader. Right. Within the, within 15 minutes, they would be out. And it just happened. It just kept happening, kept happening, kept happening. Hey man, the one I feel, and I don't know everybody's situation on, on the guys that broke down. I don't know all the details, but you know, the one that I heard that just, I feel so bad for is, is Bailey Campbell, you know, from what I understand, a, a water pump pulley cracked and Let took loose. her out. Yeah. How do you prep for that, man? That you is you just, don't. you, that is crapshoot one-on-one and i mean she walked she was walking away she left she she had that thing wrapped up so and there's gonna be so many situations like that i'm sure where it was our day it's you know a thousand things went wrong and we didn't happen to pick up any of them and 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 it got us the win but it's it's a crapshoot man it is and so there you are like as we've watched yeah, you know, twelve different race lead changes, and like you said, you mentioned Bailey there, but there, you know, Cam Steele in there for a while. I remember at one point watching the the helicopter had you and uh, Cam kind of mixing it up 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 some rock trails, and then you get around him, and then you know, Marcos is you know fully fully in the race. It's you versus him, but he you know since he had to, since he rolled in in uh, qualifying, he's way at the back, so he's got this huge time lead on kind of everybody because of uh where where he started on corrected time and then you're but your physical lead you're first on the road you're coming in the back door from the top side you're, you're <laughs> dropping in the back door the first little baby ledge at the top what went on in your head you know like you talked about the slow motion roll as you went end over end in bc their shock tuning with wayne was that kind of the same <laughs> 180 different and uh that that was I just quit driving 100%. That was an idiot move. I watched the video afterwards and I'm going, dude, what were you doing? Like you, not only did I enter wrong, I did nothing about it. And it gave me forever to do something. I just kind of sat there and said, okay, all over. I'm cool with it. I'm done. Both Jared and myself, my co-pilot, when we finally got met up back at the finish line, you were both like, man, what the hell happened? And that happened so fast. And in the car, it seemed like we just drove in there and it was upside down, lickety split. I, I don't know what, I don't know how to explain it, but we screwed up. I screwed up bad. Do you think that, you know, the, because of the length of the race and the, just the mental strain, do you think you were truly mentally fatigued on that? No, I don't. I wasn't tired. And I didn't know we had the race one. I knew we were doing well and I knew we were in the physical lead, but, and, and my, the, the guys do, they tell us as little as possible on the radio because I don't like a lot of information and I end up listening to them instead of driving. You know, the last communication we had was second place and they didn't, they never even told us we were in the lead. You know, I got tangled up with Cameron Steele and, uh, you know, I'll never forget it too. We got around him. Wayne was just getting back in the car. They got done winching and, and we had shot the line and got through. And I said to Jared, I said, dude, we just passed Cameron Steele. Can you believe that? And, uh, you know, the, the guy's a legend and, and we all dreamed to be Cameron Steele and, and we just got to pass him. So that was really cool. And, uh, we got around Cameron and after that, man, every corner I'd make and I could look back out the, the window net, I could either see him or his dust cloud. I knew he was, he was staying with us. And, uh, and I was driving my nuts off trying to, to stay ahead of him because I knew once we got in the desert, he was going to eat my lunch. So if I knew if we had a chance to stay ahead of him, it was going to be in the rocks. So I just drove and drove and drove. And, 
at one point, Mikey, the radio guy, got on the radio and he said, hey, just letting you know, guys know the second place guy just broke. You can calm down, but don't slack off too bad. Gomez may get you on corrected time. And that's the first time I put it together when he said the second place guy just broke. So I just responded back. I pushed the button and I said, was second place Cameron Steele? Mikey replied, yes. That's when I knew we were in the physical lead. They never told us anything like that. So I just, he gave me too much information and I put it together that we had the physical lead. You're a smart fellow, right? That's probably where I crumbled. So from that point on, I'm going, dude, we're leading the king of the hammers. And yeah, just, I rookie, rookie mistake drove in there. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know if I was thinking about getting across the finish line or what I was going to say, because I hate talking on the radio or the, the microphone anyway. I don't know what was going through my mind, but looking at the video, it's safe to say 100% I quit driving and uh, it, whatever was going on in my head was not driving. It was something else when it happened. Every, you know, Hammertown <laughs> erupted with just, yeah. what? It made some good TV. Oh, it absolutely did. And then they got you riding quick and you, you know, lickety split, got on down into the short course and, and crossed the finish line. How did that feel crossing? That was a little touch and go. Another very fateful decision that I made that worked and it probably shouldn't have. You know, when we were the whole time we were laying on the side of that little ledge at back door, I stayed in because the game plan was let's slip this thing over quick and I'm going to take off. Jared, you're staying out. The whole time we were laying there, there was oil running past the window net that was in the dirt. And we do have, I mean, the, the whole cars have the, the breather system. It's the it's to the rules and the four sides and down and everything else like that. It just, it was the way it was laying. It allowed my, my engine crank to be draining. And uh, I drained all the engine oil out laying there. I knew we have an accumulator on the car. And I was pretty sure the accumulator was going to be dead because we laid on the side after we rolled it was on the side for a little bit on the throttle, trying to get the thing to do something, either finish rolling or flip us back in the wheels. So I was pretty sure I was pretty rough on the accumulator oil during that. Uh, so anyway, they flip us over. I hit the accumulator switch and sure enough, there, there's not a drop in it. My oil pressure gauge doesn't even wiggle. And it was just subconscious split minute, split second decisions you know, I'm still at this point, I'm thinking Gomez is coming and I just pissed away probably any advantage I had. So I just decided I'm going for it without oil. You know, we had four quarts of oil in the back of the car, but in a split second, I decided it wasn't worth the two minutes to put the oil in. She'll make it. So I hit the start button, started up again. The oil pressure gauge didn't even wiggle. Oh. And I dropped, I dropped off a back door and headed, headed for the finish line. About halfway there, I was thinking to myself, this was really, really stupid. Because just in my mind, I could picture me getting to like the Ford Arch and the motor just coming apart completely and pieces blown out of the side. And there I'd be sitting and let the whole field come around me. And at that point, I was thinking maybe I should have just taken oil and settled for a second place finish. You know, it's just what was going through my head. But fortunately, she uh, she stuck with me. It uh, The motor's completely ruined, but I'll ruin a motor for a King of the Hammers win any day. Absolutely. No. <laughs> You cross under the start-finish line, they flag you, you get the checker, you pull off, and then the wait begins for Marcos. How did that go? What went on in your head during that lull? It, And I, I truly, truly mean it. At this point, to even be in the contention for a lead, to even be, hey, this guy may have won, that was good enough for me. You know, I was pretty confident at that point I was getting my podium, and, and that's all I had ever dreamed for after the point of winning the race or sorry, of finishing the race. So just to be in contention that we may be a winner 
that that was enough. Uh, as far as the tw- time, the fifteen or twenty minutes or whatever we had to wait there, that went by at a snap of a finger. I mean, it just that was my next question: was it how fast or how slow? It, it seemed like an instant later, it was all figured out. It was just everything's going a million miles a minute, and you know, everybody's congratulations. And you know, Eric pulled in, and I got to talk to him and Robbie, and um, there was enough going on that the time flew by before I could even know it. So that, that wasn't a problem. Oh yeah. Eric looked like he was on a pogo stick. He was bouncing around like <laughs> yeah. from, from car to car up and down, hugging, high fiving. I mean, Lee was there with the baby. I mean, just, they were, I don't think he could have been happier. I don't think there was a more proud or happier person there about your win than him. No, it's been, you know, our relationship has been awesome off the track. We're best friends and we do anything for each other, any, any condition, anywhere. Uh, on the racetrack, we certainly just want to beat each other, but same deal. I mean, I've, I've taken second place to Eric already and, and, uh, it's awesome. You know, it's awesome to see two cars that are super identical with two guys that drive, I think extremely identical, how consistent those two cars can be all the time. So it's fun. Uh, It's kind of like the planets and the stars align on that. Yeah. Yep. So here you are. Jason Shearer has handed you the scepter. Dave Cole has announced, you're the man. King of the Hammers, 4,400 winner. You drive across the stage. You're the guy. You go back to PA. I can see in the background, and that's what the the people that listen to this show do not get to see, right? They don't get to see the video of you're sitting in the shop. There's two pro chassis. What would you say? They're about 50% torn down, each of them, maybe more? They're both missing their engine. Transmission, transfer case, driveline. Really, the only thing that's in them right now is a little bit of plumbing and electrical. Other than that, they're completely stripped. They look pretty gone. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And that's, I mean, that's part of our program, too. I I pride ourselves on, on, on the prep that this team does. And that was another thing I've always said. If, if I can't do it right, I don't want to do it. You know, so we, we take these things to every race. I mean, they're, they're 100%. They could race hammers at any point it's one of the biggest things for the continued success of this team uh, is just race prep, man, just hammer, hammer, hammer. And, and you're right. A lot of people don't see the amount of work. You know, a lot of guys think you just take it home, you give it a wash job and you maybe change the motor oil and, and off you go. And, and it really couldn't be further from the truth. You, I mean, these things come pretty much completely apart every single race. And uh, you know, if there's something that's not 100%, you fix it. 99% isn't going to cut it. And, uh, we've always just stuck with that. Well, where I was going with that was, you know, the hammers was really barely over a month ago. I'm sure you celebrated, but immediately you guys get back to PA and you're back in the shop, you're back cranking it out, you're back stripping it down, you're back making the cars back new, no rest for the wicked, right? Right. The, the, the BC car, you know, I knew I had that car, that motor nuke coming across the line, that car wasn't home for four days and the motor was out at the, at the engine builder already. So, I mean, it came back, washed it, tore it down, engine out and, and off it went. So it's forever, man. And, and it's the ultra four racing, especially if you're going to do the whole, you know, a series East or West and hammers, there really isn't an off season, you know, cause no. you like all, you would think, well, winter, you get to relax. Well, no, all winter you're rebuilding to go to hammers, which is in the middle of winter. And as soon as you get home from hammers, you got to start all over again because the next race is in a month or two. And uh, it's, there's just no off season. It's constant. 
Uh, it's a good challenge, though, I, and, and clearly you've risen to that occasion on numerous occasions at this point over the past four years to constantly be putting in that work. And you're right. The people don't see that. They see when you're at the race, they see you at you during the race, and they see you slightly after the race. They don't see the countless and hundreds and thousands of hours just spent <laughs> toiling away on this chassis chasing this dream. And, and you've chased a dream, and you continue to attain it and meet it and reach it and exceed it pretty badass. And so when anyone looks at me and says, Hey, who's Josh Byler? I'm going to say, how do you not know who Josh Byler is? <laughs> I mean, that's serious. Like, how do you not know who this guy is? And you know, now we've got, we've got you on the record for it. So what's next? What's next for you? You know, I've been asked that question a whole lot. They're like, well, now you won King of the Hammers. What's your next thing? You know, what are you, what are you going to go do next? And you know, it, this, uh, we're going to, you know, my game plan has still stuck. We're, I'm having a blast. Uh, the rest of the crew's having a blast. Uh, you know, I get to do this with my dad. We're going to do this as long as we're having fun or as long as we can afford it, whichever one comes first. Like I said, we're having fun. I don't know what's next. Uh, we're going to, we're going to ride this, this train maybe forever. I don't know, but we're going to run it till it's, it's no longer fun or, or the crew's not interested anymore. And we're, we're just going to keep sticking with this as long as we, as long as we can. Hey, I support you winning again. I support you winning even like maybe two more times. Once you've won three times, I don't know if I'm, I'm going to be able to support you. I'm going to probably have to start Fair enough. supporting the, the new younger, you know, the next guy who no one says they've heard about, but has won the points championship for a couple of years in a row. I'll be like, that's the guy I'm after. I'm giving you a hard time. Yes. Yep. I'm, I'm with you hundred percent, man. Well, Hey Josh, did we cover kind of everything about your story that you uh, wanted to get off your chest and kind of get out there? I think so. You covered all the bases for me, man. I like, I had an absolute blast going down the, this rabbit hole with you and really telling your story and the people that exactly that they came forward and were like, Hey, who is, who was this guy? And like, no, this, you should know this guy. This is, this guy's a, should be a household name. Well, now you, you are a household name. Now <laughs> they have uh, something and some color and, uh, some dialogue to go behind that. I hope, uh, Hope you gain some fans by that, by people just listening to you. You're a super likable guy. I love some of your sayings, some of your nuances. Dude, very nice to have had you on the show. Thank you for agreeing, and congratulations, man. Yeah, no problem. I, um, it's everybody, well, it's no secret. I, I don't like the interviews or the the speeches or anything like that. I, I'm not, it's not my cup of tea. It's not why I'm doing this. It's, uh, it's cool, and I'm glad you guys are interested. It's just, I am uncomfortable with it, so. If, uh, hopefully you can do something with it. You fooled me, but I had been told that about you, that you, uh, are kind of that way and reserved and man, I, I hope I brought it out of you. Cause I really felt like we've had a, a <laughs> I've had a good, you know, two hours with you. So I hope everyone that listens, they have a good two hours too. And they feel like they're on their commute to work and they're sitting there listening. They're like, man, that was fun. I like Josh. <laughs> I hope you're right, man. I hope you're right. <laughs> All right. Well, Hey, we'll, we'll let you get back to it, but Josh, thank you. Congratulations and good luck on 21, man. I know you guys and what the effort that Big B puts into everything that you guys do, you guys do it 100% and then some. I have no doubt you guys are going to be close to a repeat this year on points and probably close to repeat again at Hammers and 21. But, man, awesome. Keep it up. Don't stop. Thank you, Wyatt. I appreciate it. All right, guys. We are out. I'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, Custom Splice Off-Road Recovery Gear. For all of your off-road recovery needs, reach out to these guys, customsplice.com. Thank you for listening and taking a dive into The Talent Tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at The Talent Tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.